Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Boulder Weekly is being brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, July 14th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. And my name is Orion Rooney. Today, we'll be reading the following stories. The Language of Stoke by Will Brenza. Layers of Paper, Paint, and Memory by Matt Mainpaw. Roll Another One by Nick Hutchinson. Acid Rain by Adam Perry. The Tiger in the Jungle by Michael J. Casey. Down on the Farm Stand by John Lendorf. Spicy Grape Juice by Ari Laveau. Printing Homes of Hemp by Will Brenza. The Language of Stoke. TGR's latest mountain bike film, Esperanto, features a Littleton local becoming a free ride idol for the next generation of riders. By Will Brenza. Samantha Soriano had her eye on Teton Gravity Research, TGR, movies. Making it into one of the high-energy sports films was an aspiration the Littleton local wrote down in her journal years ago. It was a bucket list goal, she says, something she hoped to eventually achieve through her freeride mountain biking. But for the first few years of her professional career, she was focused on racing above all else. She wanted to be just like her idol, Tane Seagrave, the professional British downhill racer. I wanted to be the American version of her, Soriano says. All of my time was consumed by training, and I was always thinking, okay, next race, next race, next race. Soriano started riding professionally at the age of 16. Now she's 21, and over those five short years, she's competed in just about every style the sport has to offer. At Columbine High School, she raced BMX. When that got old, she switched to cross-country enduro racing, competing in long rides over mountainous trails. Then she fell in love with downhill racing because it combined her BMX skills with mountain biking. After a shoulder surgery in 2019, though, Soriano was feeling burned out on the racing circuit. She'd competed around the world with some of the best racers on the planet, and it was wearing her out. When you're at a race, you're like, go, go, go for four days. You've got track work, and you've got practice, and you've got qualifying, and then finals day, she says. Turning pro when I was 16 was amazing, but it was really hard. Being that young, I fried myself. So, she switched gears. She started freeride mountain biking, focusing her energy on making content with her sponsors and building a social media presence around her riding. It was a choice that's paying off for the young up-and-coming rider. One day last year, she answered a phone call from a number she didn't recognize. It was TGR. The extreme sports media company was making a new film called Esperanto, 
named after a language created by a Polish-Jewish doctor in 1887. Esperanto, the language, was meant to break down barriers between cultures and allow people from any background or age group to communicate and express themselves, not unlike mountain biking, the film posits. TGR was reaching out to Soriano because they wanted her to ride for a segment in the film. I was kind of dumbfounded. I was like, no way, this is a prank. Like, you're not asking me to do this, she recalls. But it wasn't a prank. They were asking Soriano to do it. This whole thing feels super surreal, she says. Before she could even wrap her head around the opportunity, she was out in the Utah desert, surrounded by cameras and a film crew, shredding with more professional female riders than she'd ever ridden with before. Esperanto is shot all around the world. From Spain to Ecuador, Zambia, Japan, Jackson Hole, and of course, Utah, where Soriano was ripping three-ride trails alongside Chelsea Kimball, Blake Hansen, Brooke Anderson, Hannah Bergman, and Sophie Gregory for their segment. It was an enriching experience, Soriano says. Not just because she was riding beside women older and younger than her, Sophie Gregory is just 11 years old, and not just because they were in such an iconic mountain biking mecca, but because they were all learning from one another, inspiring each other, speaking a common dialect. Mountain biking for us is a universal language, Soriano says. A universal language that everyone who watches Esperanto can understand without sharing a single thing in common. The language of Stoke. The film opens with a gut-turning freeride segment in the Catalonia region of Spain. With Andreo Lacondegui alongside Kurt Sorge and Brage Vestavic, charging through forests and launching off of massive chumps. Next, Esperanto takes us to Ecuador to follow René Arvalo, Johnny Salido, Carson Storch, and Nico Vink as they assault ancient trails in the Andes Mountains. Then to Japan for some of Tomomi Nishikubo's masterful urban freeriding. Then to Zambia, then to Jackson Hole, and eventually coming full circle back to Spain. Each and every segment is an onslaught of mind-bending freeride fearlessness with some of the biggest names in the sport. Soriano's segment, between Zambia and Japan, was shot in southern Utah in a place called Virgin, where she and the other female freeriders put their skills on full display. When you think of freeriding, mountain biking, you think of Utah, Soriano says. In particular, you think of Virgin, Utah. With its red rock mesas, formations, chutes, hills, ridges, gullies, and cliffs, Virgin is a playground for freeride mountain bikers. But it's not for the faint of heart. The steepness of the trails, the height of the cliff drops, the gnarly rock features, and the size of the jumps are all extreme. None of that was new to Soriano, but the film crew and process of making a movie was. When you're filming, you have so many opportunities to get things right, she says. I think filming is a lot more enjoyable because you can mess up and be like, okay, I can try again. It's way less scary to ride in front of a camera than a clock. They shot on location for 10 days, Soriano says, crushing ridges, sending kickers, throwing no-handers, bar-turning, and moto-whipping their bikes over the jaw-dropping scenery. The best part for Soriano, though, 
wasn't necessarily the world-class terrain. It was simply riding with women whose ages spanned a decade in either direction of hers, and helping each other grow as riders with every single run. Just being able to ride with a group of very talented girls and also having the opportunity to help each other conquer fears? I think that was for sure my favorite part of the whole entire week, she says. Having a group of people that resonated with you so much better than anyone else just feels really good. Soriana says it was bizarre watching herself on screen at the premiere of Esperanto in Denver last month. I had accomplished one of my goals that I'd had for many years, she says. Honestly, it was pretty emotional. While she was signing posters after the show, a young girl came up to get her signature. Soriano says nobody really knows anything about her yet, but this aspiring freeride biker did, and she was a big fan. Soriano realized at that moment that she was becoming what she'd once lionized. Just as she'd aspired to become the American version of Tane Seagrave, she's now inspiring younger female riders to become their generation's Sam Soriano. I am now kind of creating a path for myself. People are looking up to me, she says. That was just so surreal. I definitely have cried over this, like happy tears. Esperanto will go on tour across the front range starting August 4th. Attendance is free. Visit tetongravity.com for dates and locations where you can drop in and see the film for yourself. Layers of Paper, Paint, and Memory Clara Nolte's Palimpsest Bears Details of Life, Past, and Present by Matt Mainpaw A tall, white canvas leans against the wall in Clara Nolte's painting studio. It looks nearly blank, but there's a pattern of dots, not unlike a cribbage board. At the bottom, a white panty liner is stained red with period blood. On closer inspection, the holes of the canvas match the pattern on the panty liner. The work is a palimpsest, painted in layers on layers of paper and canvas, often layered with meaning. The piece was Nolte's way of addressing anxieties about motherhood and infertility. To me, this painting is deeply anxious. If I want to be pregnant, getting my period is a bad thing, she says. But when people came to my studio, seeing it brought out a deep sense of relief. In a way, other people's reactions serve to recontextualize the work for her, she says, adding another layer. A palimpsest, according to Merriam-Webster, is a writing material used one or more times after earlier writing has been erased. Historically, vellum or parchment would be scraped and washed to be salvaged and reused. Merriam-Webster's second definition of the word reads, something having usually diverse layers or aspects apparent beneath the surface. I feel like palimpsest is a good catch-all term for what my work is right now, Nolte says. This kind of layering, obfuscating, revealing, and creating a very specific focal point over the layered ground of previous thought and moments of my life. For Nolte, the word is both literal and metaphorical. Literally, she papers her canvas as part of the grounding process, painting over them before the rest of the art begins to appear. Working primarily in water-based paints and washes, which are typically painted on flat surfaces, 
Nulti's layered grounding process adds texture under what would typically be a smoother medium. The metaphor comes in the form of narrative and memory, with Nulti's paintings forming a subject photo and often an associated memory. Though the paintings are shown without context, the layers of inspiration still exist. Building on the grounds of the metaphor, Nulti often uses postcards and personal documents when papering and grounding the canvas. Layered atop palimpsest literal and metaphorical, Nulti's work highlights things mundane and often overlooked. A panty liner, an electrical outlet, a shipping pod, or the door of a house. But not just any door, the door to her sister's house in Denver. It's a door I know very well. It feels like a very touched door. It's used, and it has life experience, even as an inanimate object, Nulti says. Textured canvas lends to the details in the paint of the door and the frame, the siding of the house, and the stonework built up from the foundation. The cracks in the paint show that life experience, along with the shadows, wood grain, and hewn stone. The precision and detail are elevated by the lightness of watercolor and the muted tones. She strives for detailed representation, often presented on canvas with more negative space than subject. Using textured grounds and pastes on the canvas was in service of covering up details in personal documents, she explains. The choice to work in watercolor isn't without challenge. Watercolor dries quickly, and the loose liquid moves with will of its own. With watercolor, you're really building a relationship, she explains. Watercolor can be really frustrating for people because it's just loose. It moves and does its thing. You have to learn a partnership with it to get a certain level of detail. Nulti admits a fraction of jealousy that oil and acrylic painters have an easier time wiping a canvas clean when they're unhappy with the work. That has, in part, contributed to the nature of her palimpsests, she says. The subjects, like her sister's door, are often old and worn, Nulti says. Capturing these subjects with accurate detail is the crux of her practice. One painting in her studio captures water moving under a concrete overpass. The space under the bridge and the water itself is an empty square, but the completeness of the work is evocative. One can almost smell the mustiness under the bridge, feel the crumbling stone and flaking paint under the fingertips. Painting, to me, is almost like an archaeological experience. It's a still point in time where you've captured something. It's going to become something that references a specific time or moment, she says. I think my work is fairly personal, so I'm not sure how broadly that translates, but I think a lot of people can project their own moments. Making art is part of Nulti's family history, a personal palimpsest, but she humbly refutes being any sort of child prodigy. To me, art is such a basic pathway to communication, especially painting and drawing. The urge to make images is a really basic human instinct, Nulti says. So, I think most kids have an impulse to make marks on something, and it usually means something to them, even if it's hard to see from the outside. I don't think I was anything special in that regard. Still, her father draws and paints with watercolors, she says. Making art was totally normal and routine in her home, 
but a youthful perfectionist streak nearly took her off that creative path. In middle school, Nolte felt self-conscious and discouraged by her own perceived lack of progress, so she stopped trying for a while. I assumed I just wasn't that good at it. I've always been interested in making something representational, and having that thing be descriptive and accurate on some level, she explains. Those were hard years to be wired that way, and especially learning to draw, nothing comes out the way you want it. Nolte's mother encouraged her to take art foundation classes in high school, she says, and that teacher encouraged her further. She jokingly calls herself a studio rat, always going to the art room after school to finish a drawing or painting. It was there she discovered the joyous feeling of getting addicted to a piece and working it to a conclusion. The drive would carry her through her masters in fine arts, further honing her practice. I think the thing I'm always the most excited about in my studio is the thing I haven't started yet, she says. Palimpsest opens at the Firehouse Art Gallery on July 15th. Roll another one. Members of Gasoline Lollipops cover Bob Dylan and Neil Young in tribute band Rolling Harvest by Nick Hutchinson. As a child growing up in Pennsylvania, Alexandra Schwann had no idea that she would eventually join musical forces in Colorado with another native of her home state. But as fate would have it, Schwann and Adam Perry, a punk-inspired drummer from Pittsburgh, intersected in the Rockies. The one-time Keystone Staters met as part of the alt-folk group Gasoline Lollipops and had recently forged a Bob Dylan and Neil Young tribute band called Rolling Harvest. I flew the coop as fast as I could, says Schwan, 32, who moved to Nederland in 2009. Adam had also been born in Pittsburgh. He's always been a big supporter of everything I've done musically. We played many shows together in the Gas Pops, including a short stint in Europe. Channeling the music of icons such as Young and Dylan comes somewhat naturally to Schwann, who says she was raised on classic folk rock fare and also sang in musicals as a child. I grew up listening to James Taylor, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Bob Dylan. So it's a little dreamy that I get to be a part of this thing where I'm singing all these great songs that I've been listening to my whole life. Schwann, who is also a leather worker and a realtor, says the lure of legal cannabis, the opportunity to pursue her artwork, and the chance to attend the Telluride Bluegrass Festival are what drew her to the area. I really wanted to go to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, and I finally made it there the year after I moved to Colorado. I met some really great people. A few years later, I ended up getting in and working at the backstage area, there as a caterer for Planet Bluegrass. I've been doing that for about nine years now. The tenacious singer credits the Foothills communities in which she has lived with having assisted her growth as a musician. I've been a mountain dweller since I moved here. After moving to Nederland, I kind of got started on this musical journey in Jamestown, where I spent a couple years. There was a supportive music community there, and I did open mics and some other stuff. I was in a reggae rock band for a while called Big Medicine Gang. I sang backing vocals. 
More things started to manifest thanks to all the people who encouraged me. I was the front person in the Sweet Lilies for about two years. After that, I took a little hiatus, and then I became part of Gasoline Lollipops for a while. Schwann plays the sixth string, but says she tends to stick to the vocals in Rolling Harvest. She and singer-songwriter Hunter Stone share the front duties in the group. Between Stone and Schwann, they provide the legendary catalogs of Young and Dylan with a pleasing blend of male and female voices. Singing is kind of my zone, Schwann says. I've thought about trying to play some guitar in the band, but we already have two killer guitarists. I'll pick up some percussion instruments from time to time during our rehearsals. Hunter and I both sing. He'll be gone during our first shows, so I'll be taking the bulk of the vocals for those. I'm really excited about some of the deeper-cut Neil Young stuff. Tunes like For the Turnstiles, Unknown Legend, and Homegrown are just a few of these off-the-beaten-path songs. Adam Perry has a huge library in his head. I like the material he's brought in for us to learn. We're working these songs up into great performances by the whole band. I'm also a fan of some of the slower Dylan ballads, like Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, or Meet Me in the Morning. We model some of the songs after cool covers, such as the Be Good Tanya's version of For the Turnstiles. We're borrowing some of their approach on that one. The song When I Paint My Masterpiece is also a favorite of mine. I picked it up out of a Jerry Garcia songbook back when I was first learning guitar, and I still love to sing it. A more recent adjustment to Schwann's presentation includes the loss of her signature dreadlocks, which some of her Front Range fans might remember. I had really long dreads for about 12 years, and I was ready for a change, says the singer. They went all the way down to the backs of my knees. I put in a lot of time and effort into that hair, but I guess it was time for a change, so they're gone. In addition to changing her locks, another, more intense life change occurred for the hill-dwelling realtor and artist when a past boyfriend recently passed on. I lost an old boyfriend, Alex Schultz, earlier this year. He had been a huge advocate for me to push myself and get out there and perform. He was the person who would pep-talk me through my bouts with imposter syndrome. He was also an artist who worked with stone carving and jewelry making. The warehouse space where Rolling Harvest practices is where Alex used to work. He passed while this band was manifesting, so it's special to play music in the space where his motorcycle is still parked and his artwork still hangs. He also played in Big Medicine Gang, so a bunch of his percussion instruments are there, including tambourines and stuff. We try to keep his memory alive, and we dedicate our version of I Shall Be Released to him. Perry says the band has about 30 solid songs at this point, and can play short or long shows, depending on what any given occasion might demand. The group plans to perform all over the front range this summer and fall, with all of its musical friends. There will likely be some intriguing jams as the band picks up steam. There are so many amazing people who might jump in, says Schwann. We'll no doubt see some special guests, which will be super cool. I'm just really excited to be playing with a bunch of mega-talented people. It's fun, and the dynamic among the band members is really great. Everyone shows up to rehearsals and knows what they're doing. We're getting some great work done. On the bill. Rolling Harvest, 8 p.m. Friday, July 15th. 
Boulder Roots Music Project, 4747 Pearl Street, Suite V3A, Boulder, 3. Acid Rain. Goodzer brings fine food, beer, and jazz to five points. By Adam Perry. Anthony Lopicciolo is from Detroit, but as a jazz lover, he appreciates the music's deep history in the Five Points area of Denver. That made 2801 Welton Street, a building that dates back to 1884, an auspicious place for Lopicciolo to open Goodzer, a restaurant that focuses on sour and iambic beers, meat and cheese boards, and, since last fall, free concerts by some of Denver's best jazz musicians. The history in Five Points was a huge reason why I wanted to open in the neighborhood, Lopicciolo says. It's twofold, really. Because of the jazz history here, and me always having been passionate about jazz music, especially because of how awesome the jazz scene is in Detroit, and listening to jazz with my dad growing up. Opening in Denver's only historical African-American neighborhood was also a big thing for me. Everything was either a bar or a cafe or closed, and I wanted to try to do something new. Goodzer, which means good acid in Dutch, was inspired by a trip Lopicciolo took to Belgium. It has a full menu on top of its lauded meat and cheese boards, and the restaurant also features organic wines, a cocktail menu, and of course, incredible beers you're unlikely to find anywhere else. There isn't any place like what we have, says Lopicciolo, who boasts that Goodzer is the only tap house that focuses solely on sour-slash-lambic beers. It's really the Belgian style that was the big inspiration for our tap list, and that's what we've been driving for. Though it's only been open for five years, Goodzer is more well-known outside Colorado than in the Denver area, and won Imbibe Magazine's 2018 award for Best Beer in America. Goodzer creates collaboration beers with a number of breweries and puts out an acid jazz series every year for the Five Points Jazz Festival. Lopicciola says the restaurant also creates collaboration cheeses with Vermont-based Parish Hill Creamery and generally tries to be as involved as we can with producers we're passionate about. The same goes for the jazz Goodzer features every Thursday, as well as every first Friday, according to the local guitarist Cole Rudy, who plays in the blues rock band Dragon Deer and curates Goodzer's musical menu. They go through a lot of painstaking effort to make what they have stand out, to not be only high quality, but also make sure every ingredient has a story behind it, a relationship behind it, Rudy explains. Anthony Lopicciolo wanted someone to be able to sort of direct the music portion of their business to reflect the same thing as their food. I talk with every artist I book about that, because I want it to match the quality and the effort that goes into every other little bit of that establishment. It's the opposite of the corporate vibe. Five Points is growing and changing like so many Denver neighborhoods, for better or for worse. And Rudy has a unique perspective because he also ran the Meadowlark's jazz series at one point and saw a rhino transform around it. He has also lived in Five Points several times and wants to preserve what's great about it. My personal goal, and what I'm grateful to get to do, 
is to bring in the music that reflects the heritage and culture that is Five Points in Denver. We want to uphold that tradition. Anthony and I both have a hardcore love for that neighborhood, and I'm just as scared of gentrification as everybody else. That is a classic stretch of Denver, and it's one of the last untainted parts of the city proper. And my hope is that when it does happen, the business owners and residents can come together and really keep the vibe of the original neighborhood there. The list of people who have played there goes on and on. Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Rudy says. I think Goodzer fits in really well, because they're not a franchise or a chain. They're not just another W hotel bar. Rudy often plays Goodzer's musical jazz nights himself. And he's having a blast bringing in not only some of the best Denver jazz musicians, Gabe Mervine, Hunter Roberts, Taylor Clay, etc., but heavyweights from Europe and New York City, including Downbeat Award winner Rico Jones. Rudy and Lopicholo both say that building a reputation for a Belgium-inspired bar, restaurant, and jazz club in Five Points has been slow going and at times awkward, but that they're committed to showing the neighborhood Goodzer is something special. I think if some of the older folks that have lived in the neighborhood a long time actually gave us a chance, they could see how great of a jazz thing we've started, Lopicholo insists. We don't really get people in the neighborhood that come in for the music, which seems silly because it's free. It's there. We're kind of one of the only white-owned businesses in the neighborhood, and I'm sure that has something to do with it. The housing market is nuts, too, and I'm sure people have had to tighten up on their budgets. We get more love out of the country, from London and Japan and Belgium, than in our own neighborhood. As for the music itself, Lopicholo says, the level of talent that's being curated by Rudy has been phenomenal, but just because we're not marked as a jazz club, it doesn't seem to catch wind fast enough. These guys are selling out Dazzle, and then it's hard to get 20 people to come in here to see them play for free. There is a jazz scene in Denver that's more than a couple of places that we always think of. It's growing. The Tiger in the Jungle Remembering the Legacy of James Can with Thief by Michael J. Casey The man is silent. He removes a welder's helmet and reveals his face, tired, soaked in sweat, and soot. He pulls a chair to the center of the room and sits, taking a cigarette out and lighting it. A crinkle in his eye betrays his stoic veneer, and a long and satisfying pull of smoke says more than words ever could. The man is James Can. Well, technically, the man is Frank, an expert-level safecracker in writer-slash-director Michael Mann's Thief. But let's face it, it's Can that sells the moment. Released a decade after Can's heart-tugging performance in Brian's Song, and his turn as hot-headed Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, Thief might be the quintessential Can performance. Watch any of his movies, and you'll see Can's blunt edge and sardonic humor regardless of the role. Hell, one of the best gags in 2003's Elf is that Will Ferrell's dopey, pure-of-heart buddy finds out his birth father is not kindly old Bob Newhart, but Can's Walter, a hard-bitten book publisher who would just as soon sock Buddy in the mouth than he would trim the tree. If careers could have a running gag, Can's would be at the top of the list. 
But death came to Can, as it does to all, on July 6th, 2022, stealing the last laugh. He was 82. The Godfather will go down as the movie that looms largest in Cannes' credits. Its shadow is one many actors have found inescapable. But his work as an actor is vast. He's hilarious in Elf, sympathetic in The Godfather, and magnificent in 1974's The Gambler. Yet, it's Thief's Frank, the consummate professional, a criminal with an ironclad code of conduct that might top them all. Back to that silent moment of satisfaction and appreciation. That follows Frank's successful heist of $4 million in jewels. The safe was so thick, Frank had to use a torch so hot another man stood by with a fire extinguisher to snuff out anything that caught fire. It takes a special thief to wield an instrument of that magnitude. Frank is that man. As a cover, Frank sells cars. But, as he explains to Jesse, the radiant Tuesday Weld, in bullet points, he wears $800 slacks and switches cars the way men switch shoes. That's not half of it. That's not half of it. Frank wears his leather jackets and perfectly tailored jeans the way Julian, Richard Gere, wore Armani like a suit of armor in American Gigolo. That movie came out in 1980. Thief is from 1981. They dressed differently in those days. You gotta see Thief. Frank's language is coarse, and his temperament is volcanic. But he also cares deeply for Jesse, for the kid he wants to adopt, and for Okla, Willie Nelson, the master thief who taught him everything he knows. They met when Frank was spending 11 years up the river for stealing $40. Frank's explanation of how those 11 years came to be might be one of the more captivating stories you'll ever hear, a true testament to Can's abilities in front of the camera. If the camera doesn't like a performer, it simply stares. With James Can, the camera leans in. Down on the Farm Stand by John Lundorf The real local flavors are out there, but you have to know where to look. The French term terroir refers to the character and taste of that particular field, farm, and location imbues in wines, cheese, and produce. But for the most part, you won't taste Boulder County's terroir at supermarkets, natural or otherwise. The best place to find the taste of this place, true farm-to-table, is on the farms. The fare you cook from these ingredients is local. Farmers markets are great, but only a relative handful of farms with a limited selection sell at those weekly events. Small, hard to find, and located on rural roads, the farm stands all over Boulder County dish food on the ground where it's grown. Some roadside stands, like the one at Munson Farms, are well known to generations of locals as the places to find fresh vegetables, especially tomatoes and sweet corn, and pumpkins later in the year. Other stands are tiny operations that run on a self-service honor system, pay cash or use Venmo and take food home without any contact. When you visit farm stands, you gain rare access to distinctive varieties of radishes, spinach, tomatoes, and herbs unavailable anywhere else. You meet individual farmers and can ask how to prepare various odd-looking vegetables. Do yourself a flavor favor and buy a dozen eggs at a farm stand. 
They will be multi-hued in various sizes and taste so much better than store-bought eggs. These farm stands are not full-fledged commercial operations, so hours and signage may be limited. Embrace the inherent quirkiness and arrive early for the best vegetable selection. To taste our terroir, visit the following stands. If we missed any, email details to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. Aspen Moon Farm, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Wednesday to Friday, 7927 Hygiene Road, Hygiene, aspenmoonfarm.com. Aspen Moon is a large organic farm serving a CSA and stand with a huge variety of produce, including arugula, bok choy, onions, popcorn, raspberries, and black raspberries, plus local foods. The Bee Hugger, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., Thursday to Tuesday, 12590 Ute Highway, Longmont, facebook.com slash honeyharvestshappiness. The self-serve stand is open daily offering farm-gathered honey, including creamed honeys flavored with chocolate, cinnamon, and turmeric. The farm also features a boatload of animals, you pick sunflower and pumpkin fields, and kids rides on a cute white unicorn horse, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Wednesday. Benevolence Orchard and Gardens. Self-service, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily, 6712 J Road, Boulder, benevolenceorchard.com. Hiding close to town is this farm and orchard with a mostly self-serve stand stocked with a changing roster of vegetables, herbs, flowers, and eggs, as well as mushrooms grown in the farm barn. Because the farm also features an orchard of heritage fruit trees, Benevolence Honey is especially fruity and delicious. Black Cat Farm, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Wednesday to Sunday, 4975 J Road, Boulder, blackcatboulder.com. Chef Eric Skoken and his family operate the farm that produces meat, vegetables, and grains for his restaurant, farm dinners, and the stand near the Boulder Reservoir. The year-round stand offers heirloom vegetable varieties, farm-grown lamb and pork, and prepared frozen foods from Skokin's kitchens, as well as other local foods such as Project Umami's tempeh. Bluebird Sky Farmstead, 5977 Nelson Road, Longmont, bluebirdskyfarmstead.com. Open daily, this small self-service farm stand is always stocked with the farm's chicken and duck eggs. Lard and frozen pasture-raised pork cuts available for pickup by order. Boulder Lavender Farm, Arapahoe Avenue at Willow Creek Drive, east of 95th Street, Boulder. This small honor system cart overlooking a field of lavender offers lavender products, eggs, honey, kombucha, and lavender bouquets. Cure Organic Farm, daily, noon to 5 p.m., 7450 Valmont Road, Boulder, cureorganicfarm.com. The bustling cure stand is packed with an expanding selection of certified organic vegetables, ranging from purple snap beans to potatoes. The stand features herbs, flowers, eggs, local beef, 
Western Slope Fruit and Prepared Foods from Chef Jim Smaler, formerly of Boulder Cork. Seventh Generation Farm. Noon to 5 p.m. Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday. 1536 Courtesy Road, 95th Street, Louisville. Located near downtown Louisville, this on-farm stand offers meat, produce, eggs, and honey with an autumn pumpkin fest for families. Growing Gardens 3.30 to 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, 1630 Hawthorne Ave, Boulder, growinggardens.org. The stand offers lettuce mix, hakure turnips, and more, plus local mushrooms, pasta, baked goods, and meats from Longmont's Sky Pilot Farm. Growing Gardens also offers numerous family farm activities. Let It Be Honey and More Store. Noon to 5 p.m., Wednesday to Saturday, 4689 Ute Highway, Longmont. It's all about the bees and bee puns at this stand, featuring honey, pollen, and beeswax from local beekeepers. Bring a jar to save on bulk raw honey. Massa Seed Foundation Farm and Gardens. Open from 9 a.m. to sunset. Live music Fridays, 4 to 7 p.m. 1367 75th Street. MassaSeedFoundation.org. The stand offers the region's best selection of non-GMO seeds, a greenhouse full of plants, fresh vegetables, and advice for home gardeners. Munson Farms, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily, starting in late July. 7355 Valmont Road, Boulder, MunsonFarms.com. Boulder County's longest-running farm stand is stocked with squash, flowers, tomatoes, and sweet corn, plus a fall pumpkin patch. Allen Farms, 8627 North 95th Street, Longmont. AllenFarms.com This family farm stand is stocked with a wide range of vegetables, prepared foods, baked goods, and other local food products. The stand welcomes other small farms to set up booths and offers tours of the farm's regenerative agriculture efforts. Red Wagon Farm Open daily except Sunday, 1640 Baseline Road, Lafayette. RedWagonFarmBoulder.com Red Wagon Farm has long supplied produce to local cooks and restaurants. In August, Red Wagon will open a new farm store at Lafayette's Thomas Open Space, formerly run by Isabel Farm. Sunbeam Farm 1005 Cherry Vale Road, Boulder, SunbeamFarm.com the year-round self-service stand stocks eggs, greens, and vegetables. Tabor Acres, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily, except Thursdays. 3918 North 119th Street, Lafayette. Tabor Acres devotes most of its 30-acre farm to growing an array of flowers. The stand offers blooms, farm honey, and eggs. Yaya Farm and Orchard. Thursdays and Saturdays in July, expands to six days a week in August. 6914 Ute Highway, Longmont. YahYahFarmAndOrchard.com 
famed for its fall you-pick apple orchard, apple cider, and apple cider donuts, Yaya is a fun family place to shop for local foods and fruits and visit with the animals. Boulder Weekly food editor John Lundorf hosts Radio Nibbles at 8.20 a.m. Thursdays on KGNU, 88.5 FM, streaming at KGNU.org. Spicy Grape Juice Squeeze every drop of summer onto the melting ice cubes of life by Ari Laveau Every October, I make Concord grape juice and then seal it away in jars. I hoard these sweet vessels until the following summer when I mix a chilled beverage called Spicy Grape Juice. I don't remember my first taste of chocolate or of bacon or even mayonnaise, but I'll never forget my first sip of spicy grape juice. I was an eight-year-old city boy, visiting friends deep in the Massachusetts countryside. One hot day, our pack of kids came into the house thirsty. Joan, their mom, emptied jars of grape juice and bubbly into a pitcher of ice and poured the mixture into glasses on the big dark dining room table. It hit the spot like a jump in the lake. Carbonated water a.k.a. seltzer or bubbly, contains carbonic acid, which triggers receptors on the taste buds that detect mustard and horseradish. This produces the distinct spicy taste of bubbly. For some reason, a little pain in the water makes it more drinkable, for some people anyway. The action is similar to how a dash of spicy hot sauce can make a taco more delicious. La Croix, the beverage company, has leveraged the resulting endorphin rush into drinks that feel like soda pop, even when completely unsweetened. It was unusual to consume something so completely satisfying out of Joan's kitchen. Her style of cooking was my first exposure to the unprocessed, natural, far-left wing of food. Of whole grains, carob, nuts, and beans, her arch-enemy was sugar. I wondered if this diet had something to do with the fact that Joan's kids were as tough as superheroes. They would jump off the roof for fun and cover long distances through the woods, sometimes popping out near a gas station that sold candy. Although I didn't realize it at the time, Joan's simple drink harnessed multiple forces into that unusually satisfying drink. It contained plenty of those elusive sugar molecules, thanks to that sweet grape juice. Thanks to the carbonic acid, bubbly has a sour taste that harmonizes with the sour component of the grape's flavor. In that hot, dehydrated moment around the dark wooden table, the cold combination of spicy, sour, and sweet flavors was like being plugged into an electrical socket of thirst-quenching power. Years later, I found myself with a Concord grape plant of my own, and, as luck had it, a home seltzer maker. Suddenly, I had all the spicy grape juice I cared to drink, which is a uniquely satisfying feeling. Nowadays, I use Jones Mix as a base for exploring more complex combinations of sweet, sour, and pain. My current spicy grape juice recipe includes both lemon and grapefruit juices, as well, which add extra shades of tartness to complement the grape juice and carbonic acid. Grapefruit is also bitter, a flavor that, like sour and bubbles, softens with a little sweetness. I like to add spearmint, which has a sweet flavor, and I add rose petals when available, preferably yellow, which goes best with purple. 
The petals float there and smell beautiful while you drink. A reminder to smell the roses while you can, because summer won't wait. And this is one of the best ways to enjoy it. Whether you take your spicy grape juice mixed, spiked, or straight, the sweet bubbles and acids will help you squeeze every drop of summer onto the melting ice cubes of life. Bubbles and Roses Rose petals are not essential to the architecture of this drink, so don't sweat it if you can't find any. But if you know a rose bush that has not been sprayed, then by all means pick a few, with permission if necessary. Rinse off any bugs or dust that might be on the petals, and prepare to add them to your drink. Just make sure to use a straw so you don't get petals in your mouth. If you can't get spearmint, find the sweetest mint you can. If you wish to add booze, I suggest limoncello or something like it, such as the liqueur de limon I brought home from Spain. Recipe. Serve six. Two lemons, one juiced and one sliced. One grapefruit, half juiced and the other half sliced. Six sprigs of spearmint. Petals of a rose, preferably yellow, optional. One quart of grape juice, one quart of seltzer. Divide the lemon juice and grapefruit juice among six glasses. Add a sprig of mint to each glass. Layer in the ice cubes with rose petals and thin slices of fruit in each glass, and then add the grape juice. Finally, add the bubbly to each glass, slowly, so it stays on top and doesn't mix until you want it to. Serve during a hot summer afternoon. Printing Homes of Hemp Texas A&M set to start 3D printing homes with hempcrete after getting $3.8 million grant from the federal government. By Will Brenza. The U.S. is facing a national housing supply shortage. According to some estimates, the country needs more than 3.5 million more houses in order to meet soaring demand, at a time when materials, shipping, and construction costs are higher than they've ever been. Concurrently, climate change is encroaching from all sides, and without a means to reduce the massive environmental footprint that construction creates, the U.S. is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Luckily, a new project from researchers at Texas A&M University is taking aim at those problems. Using a single, elegant green technology they believe could help simultaneously reduce the cost of building, curb emissions from construction, and build homes that save energy. And they're doing it all using hemp. Hempcrete is a very attractive material, Pedro Sideris, an assistant professor at Texas A&M's Zachary Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, says. It's a great opportunity to reduce, or at least change, the predictions of our environmental footprint. Sideris is leading a team of researchers at Texas A&M studying the potential for 3D printing houses made out of hemp concrete or hempcrete. While the project hasn't officially started yet, the researchers see a lot of potential in this idea, using printed hempcrete buildings to combat some of the most serious problems facing our society. And the U.S. government evidently sees a lot of potential in it, too. This specific project was recently awarded a $3.8 million grant by the U.S. Department of Energy's Harnessing Emissions into Structures Taking Inputs from the Atmosphere, HESTIA, program. If that seems like a contrived abbreviation, that's because it is. Hestia was the Greek goddess of hearth, or fireside, 
and the Department of Energy's Hestia program aims to develop building materials and whole building designs from a wide range of potential feedstocks that are net carbon negative on a life cycle basis by using atmospheric CO2 in the production process. In Sidrus's case at A&M, the feedstock they're using is industrial hemp stalks, which grow out of the ground and can absorb up to 15 tons of CO2 per hectare, which is a more efficient carbon sink than agroforestry. Concrete, on the other hand, is made by firing limestone, clay, and other materials in a kiln, and produces roughly 0.9 pounds of CO2 for every pound made. To put that differential in perspective, 30 billion tons of concrete is used annually around the world. If that math abides, that's 54 trillion pounds of CO2 emitted for global concrete production every year. Hempcrete is made using powdered hemp, hemp herds, pulverized stalks, lime, sand, and water, and mixing it into a slurry. Sedaris Research Project will combine that with 3D printing technology that will print the walls of the structure one horizontal layer at a time, Sedaris explains. He admits he's not the first to come up with the idea of using a 3D printer to print homes or buildings. Others have done it before, just using regular concrete mixes. However, Sedaris's team will be the first to test how that same technology works using hempcrete instead. The very exciting thing about 3D printing as a process is it's quite environmentally friendly, because when you look at traditional construction, it means a lot of waste, Sedaris says. The concrete comes in big boxes on pallets, and a lot of it gets wasted using traditional concrete pouring methods. By comparison, a 3D printer is extremely exact. It's very neat, he says. You could place concrete only at the locations where you need to. On top of that, Preliminary tests have shown that hempcrete is very fire-resistant, water-resistant, impervious to mold and insect damage, has significant sound-damping acoustic properties, and has extremely good thermal insulation properties. That means in the summertime, hempcrete structures will stay cool, and in the winter, they'll hold warmth, saving energy on air conditioning and heating, and saving homeowners money. It does have drawbacks, Sedaris admits. Hempcrete isn't as strong as regular concrete, and so it will require additional materials like steel or wood for internal framing to increase structural integrity. It's also significantly more expensive. According to Colleen Kihi Lanier, executive director for the Hemp Industries Association, at current prices it could add up to $100,000 to the cost of a building a house, depending on its size. Generally, whatever the standard price is for build per square foot, add a minimum of $60 to that, Lanier told Realtor.com. So, where it may cost an average of $120 per square foot on a traditional build, a hempcrete structure may cost $180 per square foot or more. For now, however, Sedaris is hopeful that the cost will come down with time. At this point, the material is on the expensive side, he says. But it's expensive because there is no industry to use it yet. As with any new technology or material, cost is high at the onset, and decreases as people adopt it on a wide enough scale. And because 3D printed hempcrete sits at the intersection of sustainability and resilience, Sedaris thinks it's worth getting excited about. This is a step in the right direction of building resiliently and sustainably at the same time, he says. 
I think it has great potential. That's why we're all very excited. Thank you again for joining us for today's edition of the Boulder Weekly. And my name is Orion Rooney. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.